Coming up today on the Courier Daily. This moment sort of highlights like what exactly is the task of your offline brand. We're seeing ultimately right now like exactly the pros and cons of both online and offline at the same time. And a bit later on. Just because remote working works doesn't mean that there's a paradigm shift. And by the way, just because something works doesn't mean it's ideal. If it's really cold outside, I can go out without a jacket on, but I prefer to have a jacket. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 12th of May, and this is The Courier Daily. We've been catching up with small business owners every day all over the world to find out ways they're adapting and growing during the crisis. Well, today we're kicking it off with Jenny Gillender. She's a Courier columnist and the founder of Thing Testing, a product review platform that began as an Instagram page featuring Jenny's reviews of new consumer brands. Jenny once worked at Backed VC, a venture capital firm in London, and she ran thing testing on the side until she took it full-time and turned it into her own business. Well, I thought we'd get Jenny on the show today to talk about what the future has in store for emerging brands. Who's adapting right now during the crisis? Who will adapt in the future? Who's launching and what trends we should look out for? Jenny's on the line now from her home in Detroit and... Jenny, I guess my first question is, what's your take on direct-to-consumer right now as a category? I mean, if you talk to a million different people, you'll get a million different answers. It's so interesting, and I'm actually looking at it more from like the overall commerce perspective and not DTC at all. I think it's really fascinating to you know watch all these smaller direct-to-consumer brands adapt. And in a crisis that we're in right now, it is often a benefit to be small and agile and quick to adapt. And especially, you know, if you are vertical integrated from your supply chain all the way to your consumers, that's all playing to your benefit. So I think it's been quite fascinating, actually, in the last few months or weeks, whatever it's been now, <laughs> to watch like how these brands are adapting. I do see a lot of potential in that and in online commerce overall in the next few few years to come. Someone said somewhere that we've skipped five years in waiting time to adaption in e-commerce now in the last few months. So I, I'm definitely in that camp cheering for, for online to continue growing. So you think controlling your entire, you know, everything from supply chain to production to marketing to e-commerce, that is the key to success? Because I've seen so many differing opinions on the Twitter sphere of like D2C people saying like, oh, you know, anybody with an idea now can just outsource it to a manufacturer. That's the way forward. And other people are saying, no, you keep it completely vertically and you control everything. That's the way forward. Yeah, you know, I think every category and every sort of product is a different combination and also like what's your ambition scale on things, right? So, but in this context of adapting now in the crisis, I think there's probably two different angles to doing it. One is on the product side of things, like how do you want to change? And there, obviously, a, a vertically integrated supply chain is very beneficial. We've interviewed a couple of founders on thing testing that you know, went from having distilleries to doing hand sanitizers in a couple of, you know, days or weeks, uh, or atoms, for example, creating face masks and these sorts of like stunts and adaptions, you sort of need to have that product aspect in play. Whereas then on the content side of things, which I think is the other way where you can, you necessarily don't have to have a fully vertically integrated like supply chain to be able to innovate on that side of things. Uh, but you're seeing a ton of interesting plays on that side. Maybe we can talk about those different like buckets and how to even like not do sort of like 
you know, there's the obvious quotation marks, which I don't want to sound like minimizing in any ways, but like the obvious thing to do on the product level is to do hand sanitizer or face masks, or the obvious thing on the content side of things would be to give free products or donations, or which is all fine and everyone should be doing that. That's not what I mean, but I think you can go also my, one step further in, all, in those two buckets too, which has been really, really exciting to see, to see brands do as well. What is one step further from hand sanitizer? Well, I think on the product side of things, I think one or two brands that I've seen doing, I think they are almost one step further when they're almost directly related to what you did in the first place, right? So House, the aperitif brand, uh, I think it's been a very um, often highlighted case, right? But with their restaurant project, I think that was really smart because ultimately they did really tap into their own supply chain. They did something very unique that not very many other brands could do in the same speed and as fast. And they started building around the product that they already had in place. So this is, for those who don't know, I mean, this is a, a drink brand, D2C drink brand, low alcohol, essentially, really great branding. And what they've done is they partnered with local restaurants to make aperitifs based on that restaurant and all the profits are going to the restaurant to help support them. Exactly. And actually, I think Liquid Death did, just to give the context, is that you're then giving the all the proceeds go to that restaurant, right? So they're closed down restaurants that they're supporting. Liquid Death did similarly. They supported out-of-work musicians with their with their product. So I just thought that was an interesting play in like how you could, could enforce your own messaging and like build it around the directly existing product that you have, right? Do you think any of this stuff will last though? The companies that have pivoted quickly to making hand sanitizer, will they be making that in two years? Because some of them say they will be, you know, is that a you know, smart thing or? That's, I think, remains to be seen. It will be a, a cost discussion too, and like how much of a branding play it is there. But I think then on the, what I mentioned earlier on the content side of things, where I also do believe that you can sort of create things that are maybe a little bit more lasting and around your existing product, that's where like the lasting impacts will be. Because here, for example, I think Madison Reed, which is a hair coloring, at-home hair coloring product brand that I think Index Ventures invested in, for example. Amy was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Oh, really? Yeah, but that's a fa- fascinating like example of like you are teaching people to color their hairs at home and not only are you teaching them you're teaching them a version which is actually cheaper than what they were used to doing which is like an absolutely amazing like space and moment to be in this is same for very many personal care products like olive and june which is a nail polish brand out of la they uh, are organizing these like many boot camps on instagram live literally teaching people how to make their nails at home and there you know this what is this in like two, three years from now? What does it mean? And that's where like the really interesting discussion comes into play, right? Like if we've taught everyone to do hair coloring and nails at home, what is the offline or like the retail version? What is the task left to be done in those spaces, right? Uh, And that I find quite interesting to think about. (laughs) Are there any other clever pivots, you know, temporary adaptations that you've seen from brands that you cover? I mean, you cover and you probably see, you know, hundreds of different new brands emerge every day. Who's doing something interesting that's caught your eye? The most important thing for me in all of this and what I've been nervous about is exactly this, like, will brands 
continue to launch you know like that whole like fundamental first layer question has for us been something that I've been you know a little bit nervous about like what is it going to look like but it's been very encouraging to see that that number of brands is actually not going down at the moment at all I think people are putting maybe a little bit especially in the, in the founder seats a little bit of a hold and a pause on the launch to really make sure that is this the right time and the right message to go out with right now but actually I do think that the amount of brands and what's what I'm focusing the most on is like how do you launch right now that's been the interesting part so I think you know Hiki uh, with um, Arfa brands was an interesting one where they really took the they were bold and pushed and they did really launch even in these times and I think we're actually having a very interesting week ahead I think to think because I think we're three or four big brands that we're featuring this week that are launching um so yeah I think that's been the most interesting part to observe a that they are launching and b then how they are launching I think that's that's been exciting to watch and obviously you just launched semi-recently thing testing as a proper brand I mean not you know not in the last couple months but how's everything been going with you just before we started recording, I think I'm, I quickly mentioned that for me, a really sort of big uh, moment that we had last year was this event that we organized in, in Helsinki with 250 people coming to an event and reviewing products together with us. And that was for me a little bit of an aha moment of like, I obviously I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing, but I'm just one person and we have a list of almost, you know, 2000 direct to consumer brands that look amazing and polished but you really want to know like do these products work and I I did I did some calculations that it would take me 20 30 years to review those products myself so it's not really a task that I I should be doing and focusing on which is why we've actually sort of switched gear and are focusing on how do we build a review community instead of just one person reviewing products on on Instagram which isn't which never really was the goal for me to do anyway so that's what we've been focusing on and we're a, a team of people team of uh, three full-timers right now and yeah it's extremely exciting and I'm, I'm looking forward to in the next few weeks onboarding other people to the platform too so that we can all together figure out what's really working out there <laughs> next up as some of us return back to the workplace ever so slowly what's the future of office spaces and commercial real estate for both tenants and landlords jonathan wasserstrom is founder and ceo of square foot a new york-based real estate company I caught up with Jonathan just a bit earlier to get some answers. Yeah, so our business was impacted pretty swiftly. At the end of the day, we make money on real estate leasing transactions. Uh, and it's hard to do leasing transactions if you can't tour. And it's hard to tour if you can't leave your house. The second quarter for us will be a lot slower than the, the first quarter was and hopefully slower than the third quarter uh, will be. Do you think that companies will look at real estate in a different way you know businesses who are trying to get offices or shops on on the main street will they rethink doing that i think they'll look at it differently i don't think many are going to rethink it all together it's been interesting as we look and talk to all of our clients there was a bunch of people who were engaged in a search before all of this started happening and a lot of those folks put it on pause but have now come back and the first couple weeks of of covid like the shutdown like kind of the end of March was really, really slow for kind of new business development for us. But we've seen that bounce back pretty quickly. We're not at the highs that we were at kind of January, February, early March. But there's still a lot of people out there who are saying, great, I'm ready to get back to the office. Some of those people have uh, lease expirations or other real estate decisions around that. So our funnel is filling back up again, which is nice. But what about companies who have just worked from home over the past two months and said, you know what, 
this has worked for me. Productivity has stayed rather consistent. I don't want an office. I'm sure there's companies out there. I don't think that's a majority. Just because remote working works doesn't mean that there's a paradigm shift. And by the way, just because something works doesn't mean it's ideal. If it's really cold outside, I can go out without a jacket on, but I prefer to have a jacket. So what I do think we'll see is two groups of people who don't go back to the office, which is one, we'll just pick on travel for a second. Let's say I run a travel company. My industry is decimated and my options either to have an office and go out of business or not have an office and fight to live another day. I'm going to pick one of those that's a pretty easy decision. And then the other, there are going to clearly be some companies where remote works and like works better. There's already companies historically like Automatic or, you know, I was on a panel the other day with the president of Envision, which is a 700 person company that's remote. So remote works for some people. That doesn't mean that all companies are going to go that way. What about adapting the office to the new normal, the office environment, you know, social distancing, tape on the floor, plastic, whatever? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of our clients start thinking about that. It's interesting. We've kind of moved in like two or three phases of this. The first was like, pause, holy shit, like what's going on? Had nothing to do with real estate. It just said like, what is going on in the world? Everybody stay at home. We're gonna figure out like which way is up from a business perspective. And that was call it like March 15th, really March 22nd. I think those are the Mondays till like two or three weeks after that. And then kind of everybody said, great, world's a mess. We're still in business. What do we do next? And then the last couple of weeks, we've seen people start thinking about what does it look like to reopen the office? And then I think the evolution after this is going to be how do we look at real estate from a holistic perspective going forward, right? Are we all remote? Are we partially remote? What are the implications of that? So right now we're in that second phase, which is we still have an office lease. We can't wait to get back to the office, but how to do that safely. So some of that's going to be social distancing. I think a lot of companies are going to stagger their workforces, right? So Monday, Wednesday, half the company comes in Tuesday, Thursday, the other half, and then whatever, alternate Fridays, which does a couple nice things. One, it keeps the office less dense. And then two, it keeps, especially in a city like New York, keeps the commuting patterns less dense. So hopefully there's a broader push to do this at the kind of city state level. So because the big concern actually in a city like New York is everybody commutes to the office uh, on public transit. It's a very different problem than I grew up in Houston. Everybody drives to work there. You're less concerned about what do you mean? I'm going to get on the subway with a hundred other people. And what are you talking about? Six feet. I'm like six inches if I'm lucky. Right? Yeah. I mean, here in the UK, Boris Johnson just said you could go to work if you can't work from home from today. However, please don't use public transport, walk, ride a bike. Not everybody can do that, but you know, that's, that's what the advice is. And I, I think so you'll start having more nuanced conversations about a staggered rollout. On a general basis, I bike to work. So for me, it's easy. A lot of people can't do that. Like in New York City, you have a bunch of people commuting from like Long Island or Westchester or Connecticut or New Jersey. Those guys aren't biking 30 miles to work every day. You know, I think there's still more questions than answers, but these are conversations that are happening across every client we talk to. But do you think these offices have magicians working in the background, getting the offices ready for when they do reopen? I mean, who are these people who are, you know, literally social distance proofing the offices? Well, so if you have half as many people in your office, you have some of it kind of by default. There's fewer people around. But, you know, hand sanitizer dispensers every two meters. I mean, every state or country seems to have its own rules of what an office should do for their employees. 
And I think most of those conversations right now are happening at the company level, not at the city-state level, which I think is, is actually healthy. I'm a big fan of that, so I think it's good to see that. So, I mean, I know the conversations we're having internally. I know the conversations that a lot of our clients are having internally. Yeah, a lot of hand sanitizers. I mean, I think one of the interesting questions to think about is what do you with conference rooms, right? Because conference rooms, you're like, great, six people around a table. That's whatever, 20 square feet. I don't think that happens tomorrow. I think in a, you know, in a conference room that used to be able to hold like six or seven people, you can probably have one chair in each corner and that's probably social distancing and you open the window to... We're fortunate in our building. It's not the nicest bill in the world, but what is about to turn into a very nice perk, they have operable windows. So you'll open the windows so you get a lot of air and it's you're not outside, but it feels in a lot of ways like you are outside from an air circulation because that's a lot of comes down to that. But don't you think a lot of what makes an office an office is just inherently gone? Because an office isn't just a place where you go and sit with your laptop, right? The whole point of an office is social interaction, collaboration. Yeah, yeah. So like two things there, right? Which is one, I would much rather be six feet away from you in our office than in my apartment in your apartment, especially for companies of big sizes, like they have entire floors. So like, even if it's a third full and seeing a third as many people as you normally see is a lot better than the, in some cases, zero other people, some people are seeing their apartment. The other thing that I I don't think people think about is like, Again, especially in these like markets where it matters a lot, like a New York or a San Francisco or, or a London, right? Office space is really expensive. So everybody's always trying to say, well, how few square feet can we rent today? Places where people live are not huge. The notion of like we have a whole bunch of like young adults who are 23 to 28 and they live not by themselves but with three other roommates. By the way, I lived with roommates and longer than that. So the notion of like four guys living in an apartment and then they all now sit at the kitchen table. Now they're working from home. That's not a very productive work environment. It's a very different conversation in like Houston where everybody has a house or if you have an apartment, like you by yourself can afford a two-bedroom apartment with a normal salary. So there's like a second bedroom there that can be your home office. So there is actually real benefit, getting back to your initial question, of actually just going to the office because I'm sick of working at my kitchen table. And people like change of pace, change of scenery, like the press like jumps to this, like the office is dead. Okay, you're calling from London right now. My favorite saying is now, right, the office is dead, long live the office, right? Which is always the the passing over from one monarch to the next. That last monarch is dead, and now there's a new monarch. So the new office will look and feel differently from the old office, but the office isn't going anywhere. If only because people like that social aspect that you mentioned, but for a shit ton, excuse my language, of other reasons too. And that's it for today. Make sure to sign up to Courier's email newsletter, The Courier Weekly, for more stories of adapting, growing, and reopening. That's at couriermedia.co slash sign up. And if you like this episode, why not subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts? Courier Daily's back again tomorrow. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. We'll see you then.